Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Menno Henselmans, who is a celebrated researcher, writer, and coach in evidence-based bodybuilding. He brings a critical perspective to the table, and I think that's something I've noticed whenever I listen to you speak, Menno, is that it always opens up a fresh ideas, sort of fresh look on things. So I think that is what we're going to have the mm-hmm. pleasure of having today. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Great. The, um, the fresh perspective is probably because I don't have the, uh, the typical uh, background probably for uh, a fitness enthusiast or personal trainer or coach. I started off as a business consultant. So I guess that gives me sort of the advantage that I learned a lot of statistics and science. Um, but it, it didn't give me any sort of, you know, uh, like the bro bodybuilding background or like the physiotherapy background. I didn't really have any like niche I was into before I started looking at the evidence. So um, I think it helped me, or at least give me a, you know, a, a fresh perspective on things, uh, which, you know, on one hand may mean, doesn't mean I'm right, but I think it helps with looking at a lot of topics that a lot of researchers are for a long time sort of taken for granted, uh, and especially people in the fitness community. And then, well, if you just look at the evidence, what does the data really say about this? And then form, okay, maybe uh, all of these things that we took for granted, maybe they're actually not true. Yeah, I think it's really important to have and just to have that perspective whenever you're sort of looking at all facets of an issue. So I think we're going to have a good discussion today. Just as a brief overview to set the scene, I think just establish that we're going to be talking about mainly hypertrophy, um, so physique athletes, and mainly for the advanced athlete. So to start off, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the mechanisms of hypertrophy and just a brief overview, Meadow, of what are the main uh, prevailing thoughts as to the current mechanisms of drivers of hypertrophy and sort of how much weight the literature actually puts on the different mechanisms at this point. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because historically speaking, uh, I'd say there, there have been sort of three three to four eras, if you will, where um, I think at first, like 90s, early 90s, uh, in most of the community, in terms of bodybuilding community, fitness community, there wasn't really any talk of mechanism. You know, you like some people are like muscle activation, but there wasn't really any clear thought about like what really causes muscle growth. And then scientifically, most research had been accumulating um, to mechanical tension as a key driver of muscle growth. So if you put mechanical tension on muscle fibers, which is usually because they uh, need to produce high forces, which cause the muscle fibers to activate and experience tension, um, or it's, it's the muscle that experiences tension, and that causes um, starts an anabolic signaling cascade, basically that triggers, among other things, muscle growth, and that mechanism is really well established. Um, but I think uh, Brad Schoenfeld deserves recognition for the populariz- popularization of two additional potential mechanisms which are metabolic stress and muscle damage. And the idea there is metabolic stress. Both of these things have have never really been operationally defined very strictly, I would say, because metabolic stress is more of a catch-all term for hypoxia, hydrogen ion accumulation. And I mean, there's even debate about, because if you group hydrogen ion accumulation, there's debate of if that's really a source of fatigue. Uh, Lactate, those kind of things. Lactate's also probably not really a source of fatigue. Um, But a lot of these metabolites and oxygen deprivation that cause metabolic stress and cell swelling. And that's a 
may cause muscle growth. And what, but most of the research from that is more in vitro, you know, cell cultures, uh, laboratory research, not living human beings where you actually observe muscle growth. And then the third mechanism is muscle damage, which the idea is that, well, if you damage a muscle, then it comes back stronger, basically. I'd say that over the past five years or so, um, we've sort of gone back to baseline in terms of research still very strongly supporting, I'd say almost without a doubt, um, mechanical tension as a key driver of muscle growth. And pretty much all of the lines of evidence for muscle damage and metabolic stress have sort of evaporated into um, most likely non-relevance. So it's not um, a given that they don't contribute at all, but they are certainly secondary or tertiary mechanisms. So for metabolic stress, for example, we know that some of the strongest evidence against that comes from um, the research on rest intervals, which you know, the traditional idea for rest intervals was short rest intervals are better for muscle growth because you better get a pump and burn. And that probably that intuition of the pump and the burn was really the actual sense of why people thought metabolic stress was a contributing cause. And metabolic stress, you know, calling it like that is more the rationalization, I would say, of the basically just going by intuition and feeling the pump and the burn. But we now have a lot of research showing that short rest intervals are actually counterproductive for muscle growth. So they decrease protein synthesis. We can see that directly they decrease total work capacity and there's less time under tension. Um, and therefore it makes sense that we also see in research there's less muscle growth. Mm -hmm. So th that's a strong line of research where clearly sacrificing mechanical tension or time under tension uh, to get more metabolic stress is counterproductive. And there have been a couple more lines of research like that. For example, blood flow restriction also works for non-occluded limbs, which shows that the occlusion of the limb is not the contributing cause for muscle growth. It's just that it makes the whole exercise harder and that causes an increase in muscle activation, which produces mechanical tension in muscle fibers, which causes muscle growth. Mm. And then for muscle damage, um, there've been a couple lines of research. Uh, eccentric training was thought to um, do more muscle damage and stimulate more muscle growth on uh, than concentric training. However, there's now been a lot of research that when you equate total work output, so if you do eccentric like lengthening contractions and concentric training with shortening contractions, if you equate the total work output, the research, the difference is, is marginal, maybe non-existent. And uh, because you're stronger during eccentric contractions, the muscles can produce more force when they lengthen than when they shorten. Um, in part because of passive resistance from uh, Titan. And, um, those those areas, um, um, oh yeah, the other thing is that with uh, eccentric contractions, a recent study actually from I think two, three months ago, questioned the idea that eccentric contractions are inherently more muscle damaging to begin with. It may just be that it's the novel training stimulus effect because, you know, who does eccentrics? You know, like, like nobody. Mm. You see it in physiotherapy sometimes, but if you go to an average gym, basically nobody does eccentric only training. So if you have people do eccentric only training, a novel training stimulus and we know that causes a lot of muscle damage and that study showed that after like eight weeks or so the difference between concentric ones disappeared there may still be an inherent slight difference but it's definitely not as large as originally believes and most research points towards muscle damage potentially increasing protein breakdown rates and not really increasing protein synthesis rates or not more than uh, needed to repair the muscle damage 
So any additional growth stimulus is more of a repair stimulus and not really a new net growth stimulus. So it's almost say muscle damage is more something you want to avoid, especially in excess and something you need to seek out to get bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, great thoughts. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to remember that sort of tension is the main thing and uh, and not to sacrifice that in, in, in chasing other sort of potential avenues. So what's your thought on the role of the pump and whether that's helpful at all? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it falls under metabolic stress loosely, but I don't think it's, I mean, it's indicative that you're training that muscle. So, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful to know in that sense and it can teach you some, gives you some experience. But in terms of actively chasing the pump, probably not. I think actually most ways, if you want to get a really good pump, then you would do short rest intervals, partial range of motion, and focusing only on the, the middle of the muscle, typically, like the middle range of motion. Like you just do that um, with probably um, slow eccentrics, fast concentrics, but keeping tension on the muscle, not getting a full stretch. And we know that those things, not getting a full stretch, not using full range of motion, using short rest intervals, those things actually actively decrease the amount of muscle growth you get. So if you, I'd see the pump more as, uh, as a byproduct that maybe you're at least training the right musculature rather than something you need to seek out. And there's also, there's huge inter-individual variability. You know, like some people get great pumps, some people really don't. Uh, a lot of people have certain muscle groups that they get really good pump in, but other muscles, they just, they never feel anything. And I think it, that's generally fine as long as you're progressing, you're using correct exercise technique. It's better to look at these objective indicators than pump, burn, and soreness too, for that matter. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, I think it can be a helpful sort of indicator or just a marker of, um, to help you guide your, your programming, but not necessarily the end goal. So yeah, I wanted to move on a little bit now and ask you about your thoughts on the relationship between strength and hypertrophy and how important it is to sort of develop strength. Uh, that's actually an interesting research uh, area where we have two pretty recent new studies that show that strength may be more beneficial for muscle growth than we originally believed. And even that, that I originally believed because traditionally, I think the best way to think of strength um, is uh, there, there, there are two key, key things. One, I like to think of strength as sort of the, the speed of a, a race car and it consists of two main components. One is the engine of the car, like how, how good is the car? Uh, how well is it built? And that's basically, um, that's the morphological components. Like it's the structure of the car. And the biggest part of that probably is simply the size of the engine. If you have a bigger engine, you can go faster. And that's basically mus muscle mass. If you have more muscle mass, especially in powerlifters, we see correlations with strength that are almost 0.9, sometimes 0.95, which is, it's crazy because actually, if you do high-level powerlifting competitions, uh, you could basically say that we can just forego the competition. We just put you guys in a DEXA scanner, and we calculate your total lean body mass, which is basically you know more what you would expect from bodybuilding. And the rankings of the individuals in the show would be near identical. So at the highest level of powerlifting, total fat-free mass and total powerlifting performance, previously Wilk score, or current IPF scores, are um, very, very, very closely matched. So all else equal, more muscle mass just equals more strength. There's a bigger engine to work with. And the second component is the neurological component. So 
the morphological components, basically the car, and the neurological components, or in our case, our body and muscle mass, uh, is the skill of the driver. In our case, the driver is the motor cortex. It's the part of the brain that governs movement. And the motor cortex is the race car, the race car driver. So if you have a really efficient driver, they can make use of even a, a moderately sized car really well. If you have a really crappy driver, you can be really big, but still not uh, produce a lot of force. So the um, original idea was that strength gains are in, in very large parts neurological. And that's true. But I think in powerlifting competitions, we see the strong correlation with muscle mass because you basically cap out uh, all factors. Like the, the motor cortex is as efficient as it can be. So then the limiting factor is simply total muscle mass. And in beginners, the second thing I think you should know about strength is that it's usually specific. So unfortunately, in our language, we talk about strength as if it's a trade. You know, we, we see uh, Bob is strong, you know, or uh, Kara is strong. But actually, we should say Kara has a strong squat or Bob has a strong bench press because it's their feats, their skills. Because you can be a great powerlifter, but really suck at Olympic weightlifting. Or you can be a great pole vaulter, uh, yet really perform poorly at a powerlifting competition. So, you know, CrossFit, powerlifting, strongman, uh, let alone other sports like pole vaulting and the like, sprinting, they're very different skills. And what you get good at is also very specific. We even see this with things like in powerlifting, the bench press. You can be really good at the bench press if you learn to bounce from your chest. But if you never learn the pause, which is required in most competitions, then your bench press may suffer hugely. So there's a lot of these, even you know, almost technicalities that contribute a lot to how much force you can produce during a given movement. That is basically what strength is. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, strength is always a bit difficult to talk about in the sense that we, we talk about it as if it's a trade, but really it's very movement specific. Yeah, and then sort of building on that, um, how do you like to progress people within uh, a mesocycle and what relationship do you have or do you think there is between sort of progression schemes um, that might, you know, be designed to also give people uh, strength adaptations? Right. Actually, jumping back a little bit to the other question, because I remembered you, it was a two part question, not just the relation between strength and size, but also implications for how much strength matters for muscle growth. And uh, the answer to that is that we have, traditionally the idea was that they're almost independent. So if you get strong with low reps, for example, you get really strong and you may get the same muscle growth. Whereas if you get, um, at least if you do sets of five reps, at least. If you do like sets of up to 30 reps, you may get the same muscle growth stimulus. That's uh, the, the original idea of the bro, bro bodybuilding Muscle growth zone, sort of, of six to twelve reps is, is more like five to, five to thirty reps, based on most research. So even at thirty reps, you may have the same growth stimulus, but you don't get the same strength gains, and that's because you're training the morphological components, like muscle growth, but you're not training the nervous system as much, or at least you won't get good strength development uh, for one RM strength, because you know commonly when we talk about strength and physique sports powerlifting, we, we think 1RM strength, but actually you develop at least as much strength, if not more strength at higher reps. So strength endurance improves more and isometric strength improves similarly. And isometric strength is 
it's a static contraction basically, and that is relatively um, independent of um, of the motor cortex ability to produce a given movement because it's a static contraction. So it's more influenced simply by the total muscle size. And the, the two new studies that we have show that it may be beneficial to do a bit more strength work, even in a bodybuilding program, than originally thought, because they may not be so independent. It may be that being stronger inherently increases your ability to build muscle. And the researchers in that study speculated that it's because of a greater ability to produce mechanical tension because you're using heavier weights. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if, if that is really makes sense because it's the relative muscle activation, right? That matters. It's not because if you're, if you can bench press 400 pounds, then bench pressing 200 pounds is simply not a growth stimulus anymore. It's not like 200 has an inherent growth stimulus of X, you know, it depends on how heavy that is for you. But we also have research showing that getting stronger, uh, at least in beginners, but this study was actually in trained individuals can increase your ability to recruit or activate uh, muscle fibers and uh, in particular increase their firing frequency because you normally reach full recruitment or close to it anyway but the nervous system can still recruit the muscle fibers faster which allows them to produce more force and put more tension on the muscle fibers so it's plausible and based on this study especially the last one um, it may be that um, you can actually get more muscle growth by having some uh, strength training into your program to make sure that you're also uh, getting a good deal of strength development. And in this particular study, they basically compared, I think, eight weeks of bodybuilding program versus five weeks of bodybuilding program, the same program, and then first three weeks of more dedicated strength training, which was really heavy, like sets of one to five or something, rather than sets of eight to 12, if I recall correctly. And they actually saw that the first weeks didn't produce much growth as expected for the powerlifting type program. Uh, whereas they, they caught up and then some during the subsequent hypertrophy phase. So that, that's very interesting. One of the more interesting findings, I'd say, recently, because it, it might mean that either in terms of blocks or at least in terms of adding a component of strength training, even in the bodybuilding program, is um, maybe very beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. And I guess, yeah, that naturally sort of segues into the next question, basically, which was, what are your thoughts on different progression schemes for hypertrophy and the role mm -hmm. of structured strength type programming within that? Yeah, in this, in this particular study, they use sort of a block periodization approach, like three weeks strength and then five weeks hypertrophy. Um, there have been a few studies on block periodization that are really uncompelling as to how effective it is. And most research trends towards uh, daily undulating periodization models or more conjugate methods being more effective, meaning it's probably better to have sort of all of these components in the program all the time, just in different ratios, rather than having like a block where you only do strength training and then you're, you're probably missing out on some growth stimulus. And then a block where you're only doing hypertrophy training. And then maybe it would have been better to also have, you know, the occasional set of one to five reps in there. Because we know that strength training is really relatively insensitive to volume in contrast to muscle growth. So basically the the dose response relation between muscle growth and volume is pretty tight. Like you do more volume as long as you can recover from it. Roughly speaking, you get more growth. Whereas for strength, if you do more volume, at a certain point, you really don't get much more out of it. Like if you do a couple of 1RMs, you get very good strength gains. But then if you add you know, 10 more 1RMs, 
it doesn't contribute that much more in part because the best strength training is uh, involves maximal force production when you're fatigued you can no longer produce maximal forces uh, and muscle activation levels go down so you're not really capable of um, putting the stimulus on your body that you need for maximal strength development um, so i think it would be better to have like either reverse pyramid models or like one exercise at the start of a training every other session like daily undulating periodization type where you heavy like you do heavy squats and then the next session you do more volume squats i think those kind of models uh were better and that's also how i program for my clients like i wouldn't have uh, any bodybuilding clients really do a pure powerlifting phase unless they want to do a powerlifting competition but rather i will do some some heavy work at the start of the session and then go to higher reps later in the session that's actually what the other study from this year showed that if you do they looked at squats and leg extensions, either both low reps, like sets of five, I think, both high reps, sets of 30 even, uh, or combining them. And they found that heavy squats followed by light leg extensions produced the most muscle growth. So that's interesting. I would have expected the same muscle growth pretty much regardless of condition there. Now there's, there's a little bit of a limiting factor in that leg extensions don't lend themselves terribly well to doing really heavy and squats really don't lend themselves well for high reps because it becomes essentially cardio. So it's not the most ideal study, but it's still very interesting that we see not just an increase in strength development, but also an increase in muscle growth from combining rep ranges. And some previous research has also hinted at that. One study also, uh, which involved Brad Schoenfeld, showed a strong trend towards better muscle growth when you're combining multiple rep ranges in the same session. Whereas if you combine them across different sessions, most studies find not really much of a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, when you, yeah, when, so when you say that you like to incorporate a little bit, maybe of the lower rep of stuff at the beginning of the workouts or having a heavier day and a light day, how much mm -hmm. of that are you incorporating just as a rough ballpark in sort of like, are we doing, are we doing a lot of really low rep thing sets or what would, uh, it looked like for you. Mm -hmm. yeah a simple a simple model would be like daily undulating periodization where you work like a heavy and a light day and the heavy day if if the reps are, are really low basically like four minimum for something like squats uh generally three to five is like the minimum i think for muscle growth that you that you want to get enough time and attention if you start dropping below that i like to use reverse pyramiding so you may have one day where you're just doing sets at 10rm for a squat and the other day, we squat at, say, 4RM, but when the reps drop to 3 or below, which is probably going to happen after the first set already, then you subtract about 10% weight so that your reps go up about one per set. So then you would do, say, 100, to give a simple example, 100 times 4, um, 90 times 5, 80 times 6, something like that. So then essentially the ratio is you only have re one really heavy set over two sessions, and the other session, the other two sets are heavy-ish, you know, five and six reps. Um, so you definitely want to skew the ratio towards higher reps if your primary goal is muscle growth. Because a couple studies, not decidedly, but a couple studies have shown that if you're going above about 85% of 1RM, then on a set-by-set -set basis, you don't get the same growth stimulus as on, from higher rep sets. And that's probably simply because you're not getting enough time and attention. You get a high force production, high tension if you do say a one RM, but it's it's just not a lot of time on a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think that 
um, sort of the temptation to hit one RMs or like, you know, really, really low, low reps is there for bodybuilders, but, but the mm -hmm. amount of fatigue you also derive from that mm -hmm. for the amount of valuable tension that you're getting is, isn't efficient. Yeah. You basically, you get just one, one effective rep effectively as a growth stimulus, uh, but it costs you a whole set. Yeah. And then looking at across a meso cycle, how do you like people to progress? Like in terms of progression schemes sort of, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of traditional progressive overload. And I think it's good to realize for most people that if you're not getting stronger, meaning you're not doing more reps with a given weight or you're not adding weight and doing the same amount of reps, then it's uh, quite unlikely you're getting bigger. In fact, even if your uh, strength is basically plateaued, that's, uh, it's quite possible you're losing muscle, especially if you're in energy deficit. Because normally, especially on a, a more novel exercise, not if it's like your all-time life PR on the squat, but any exercise that you haven't been doing for at least several months, you should be getting stronger on that exercise, at least just from the neural gains that you get. The nervous system becomes more efficient at coordinating that movement. Intermuscular coordination, antagonist co-activation decreases, those kind of factors should result in you being able to lift more weight. So you should almost always, on a, an optimized program, see some trend of increasing strength. And I think it's best to simply chase that quite directly, provided that you're still very, very strict with form, because that's a, a huge practical issue that many people run into with progressive overload. They start sacrificing form for weight, and then you're sacrificing the measurement of the growth stimulus for the actual growth stimulus. So that's definitely counterproductive. Um, but yeah, in, in, in terms of the, the periodization model, I like daily undulating periodization and then pretty linear increases in strength as much as possible. Um, when that doesn't work, uh, intensifying is something I like. And I don't like to switch exercises unless it's, I see it as really unfeasible that we can still progress further in strength because um, I think many coaches use it as sort of a cop-out, like if you give a completely new program every four weeks to every client, then it's sort of an, an, an auto progression uh, approach because everyone can get stronger on new exercises for a couple of weeks and you give them a completely new program and it's like, oh, I see you're, you're still getting stronger, but actually it's just, it's only neural developments and they're not actually getting bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's definitely good to, uh, to think about that we're not just sort of copying those initial adaptations. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, what, what are your thoughts on progression between mesocycles in terms of uh, different hypertrophy variables? Mm -hmm. And uh, how would you define a mesocycle here? What, what time period are we talking about? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I guess just the, the time between a deload sort of thing. So this could range mm -hmm. anywhere between sort of four to 12 weeks. Right. Yeah, within those periods, I like pretty linear progression models. Uh, you can have multiple tracks. Like on the squat, you have the heavy day and the light day. That would be daily undulating periodization. And then both of those tracks should progress like in weight, pretty linearly, weight or reps at least. And then you have to you have to set out like what's a realistic rate of progression, you know? especially for an advanced lifter. It may not be realistic to just add some weight to the bar, especially if they don't have microplates or plate mates, those kind of things. Uh, and you maybe you progress in weight and then you, your reps drop and then you progress in reps and then you add more weight and then you know it's more zigzag rather than a very truly linear line. 
but overall, I, I do like to see increases in reps or, or weight pretty much uh, all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then moving on to sort of zooming out to looking at looking at um, across or between mesocycles, what are your thoughts on uh, sort of periodization between uh, different blocks? Yeah, not much. Um, because, like I said, block periodization is, is really a compelling effect. Like, if typically I progress um, based on, on two primary factors. One is the progression itself. So I basically, um, I also tell most of my clients, like, it's not you get a program, but it's more now you go into the system. And when you're in a system, you, you start with a certain baseline, a certain program, and then that's adjusted and re-optimized all the time based on your progression. So as long as everything works perfectly, you're making great gains, basically nothing will change. When you see things are starting to stall, or if you, for example, see that the shoulder exercises are all stalling, that means the shoulder program needs to be needs to be uh, adjusted. If it's just one exercise, maybe just be the progression model for that one exercise that needs to be adjusted. But things need to be constantly adjusted to maintain that constant progression. Otherwise, you're, you're probably wasting time. The program is not resulting in the desired stimulus anymore. And then over the long run, you also see that as someone gets more advanced, their uh, ideal training stimulus changes, which generally means they should be able to handle higher training frequencies, higher training volumes, and they have more to gain from uh, higher intensities. So as a beginner, uh, there's really not much point in doing 1RMs, in my opinion. Um, like probably 85% of 1RM is, is really the max you ever have any um, any business working with. And as you get more advanced, you may get into the stage like what we talked about. You may start benefiting more from some actual growth stimulus, maybe even the occasional 1RM, or at least 90% of 1RM, that kind of range. Uh, you also benefit more from periodization models. And my particular uh, favorite is daily underlying periodization again. So those kind of changes occur very, very gradually over time. Like from beginner, there may be a couple more, like within the first year, there may be pretty significant changes. But say within year five and six of training, the program may um, have only very minor, just constant re-optimizations. And over time, that translates into significant differences. Uh, but overall, I'd say if you compare my programs to like, I guess, typical approaches, my programs have relatively few adjustments and are very targeted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I like that. I think that it's, um, it's also nice just from the sort of consistency standpoint um, where, where you really get to think about where you are getting a good understanding of how your body responds to different variables and, and mm -hmm. learn, learn how to tweak things in an auto-regulated fashion. Definitely. I think auto-regulation is uh, something I'm also a big fan of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now zooming out even more to sort of include dietary interventions as well. Um, what are your thoughts on optimal rates of gain for uh, hypertrophy? Yeah, that's really individual. If you, um, I mean, typically the, the general guideline, what I use during any type of bulk, uh, I'm a fan of lean bulking programs, as, as it would be called. I think the, uh, the old school kind of reamer bulk um, is really not effective for natural trainees. Uh, it has significant merits for enhanced trainees, but it really doesn't work for natural trainees. Like I coach both, uh, probably 90% plus naturals. But if I look at the effects of people on gear versus not on gear, and what you see happen and in, the, in the literature, which is only on natural Chinese uh, that we know of, it's 
pretty much the same at a, after a certain relatively minor energy surplus. As a natural trainee trying to lean bulk, you're pretty much maximizing muscle growth and strength development. And if you add more energy, it basically becomes all fat. Like there is, there is a little proportion effect, but it, it seems almost like a hard threshold if you look at the studies that we have. Which means, if you really think about it, a kilo of month or a kilo a month of muscle would be outstanding progress for an advanced training, right? So that's maybe 2,500 or so net um, metabolizable energy, uh, which is, you know, if you look at that per day, it's not even 100 calories. Um, there, there may be a little bit extra in terms of uh, energy expenditure beyond that needed simply to deposit the new energy in the body. But overall, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tiny energy surplus. You really want to be in that fine balance because on the one hand, if you go over it, you have more fat gain. On the other hand, especially for an advanced trainee, if you stay in energy maintenance, I think basically nothing happens. So as a beginner um, or I think even intermediates can still recon very effectively. Uh, and then you're, I think you're even better off just cutting and you may still get some muscle growth or recon. But if you're truly advanced, then you basically get to the point where um, if you really want substantial muscle growth, it's going to make you appreciably bigger after the next cut phase as well. So you maintain some of that, you know, even after the cut, then uh, you need to be an energy surplus. And it becomes very much a fine-tuning matter of being in that exact sweet spot where you're just short or just spilling over into some fat gain, but ideally just on that sort of threshold effect, but not at maintenance. Now, if you look at a plot, a funnel plot or a scatter plot of um, different lifters in a study and see how much muscle they gain, it looks like a fan. Like it's literally, it goes from negative, like I don't know how, <laughs> it might be part measurement error, but in a lot of studies, people lose muscle mass, mm. which is crazy, right? It's like, it's a program that clearly works on average. People make good gains, but there's a few people in the study that managed to lose a, a significant amount of muscle mass. <laughs> That's like a very common finding. So uh, it basically goes even from negative all the way up to positive. And there's the guy we all hate, which is at the top, uh, that gains like five times more muscle than anyone else in the study. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that the exact energy surplus required to be in that sweet spot uh, is, is really individual. Mm. Um, I guess sort of what would be the range of uh, rates of weight gain that you see your advanced clients uh, bulking at? In advanced clients, you're, you're pretty much happy with, with any weight gain that's truly lean, like any positive weekly percentage weight gain rate. So like 0.3% weekly uh, lean is really good. And a lot of people like look at that and they're like, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's not a lot. I'm, I'm wondering if I should even bother. But if you scale that to a year, you'll see it's, it's actually really substantial, even 0.3%. Um, I think even in beginners, more than a percent consistently is, is, is tough. So you're, you're generally in the range of, I think both wall cutting and bulking actually of 0.1 to um, um, yeah, to one, 0.1 to 1% uh, change with 1% being really drastic and anyone but like obese individuals or rank beginners and 0.1 being very low. But even if you get 0.1 truly as an advanced trainee, you do that for a year. That's that's really not bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, what are your thoughts on the optimal length of massing phases in certain 
the minimum and maximum length. Yeah, I think um, there is actually sort of an, an ideal energy surplus for ideal body fat percentage grains. And we see that in research, it's mostly in the beast individual that we clearly see it. There's, there's not much research to really define the exact range. But we clearly see in overweight individuals that at some point, uh, excess inflammation, excess aromatization of uh, testosterone to estrogen, which decreases total anabolic uh, uh, growth hormone levels. Uh, those factors um, reduce both recovery capacity and muscle growth over the course of a program. And we also have at least one good twin study. They didn't lift, unfortunately, but you could see that over time as they overfed them for a long period, the, uh, the ratio of muscle to fat decreased substantially over time. And that, that's probably because they basically got too fat at some point. So um, I think for, for most men, the, the ideal range is ideally like 7 to 15% or so. Uh, we want to stay like long-term. Some men can definitely go up a bit higher. Um, and for, for, for women, it's generally the low end is when you lose your cycle or when it becomes irregular. Like amenorrhea is a very strong sign assuming it's due to body fat level because it can also be stress-related or due to other causes. But if you lose your cycle or it becomes very irregular, that's a clear sign you're probably going into a suboptimal environment for uh, anabolism. And women in general have a lot of leeway because they also have a much more favorable, like genetically favorable metabolic profile, uh, in part because they have a feminine body fat distribution, which is more pear-shaped than apple-shaped. So there's less abdominal fat storage and less visceral fat storage, which is the fat between your organs. And that's the worst fat because that contributes to insulin resistance, more inflammation, etc. Like insulin, insulin resistance and inflammation correlate quite strongly generally. So um, women generally have a, a much more an easy time in that they can get much bulkier than they, they typically want. So it's like an advantage that they rarely want to take advantage of. And uh, there's a more clear sign of the body saying, hey, it's time to stop cutting now when you start, when you see it in your menstrual cycle. Uh, for men, it's more, you have to monitor progression. Um, abdominal fat storage is a good sign. Like if someone has a lot of abdominal fat storage, they're probably not in an ideal uh, environment in terms of inflammation and the like to bulk further. Uh, unless, you know, you're unrestricted by weight class, you're like super heavyweight, strong man or powerlifter, then it doesn't matter. Uh, but overall, I'd say, yeah, that, that range of like up to 15%, maybe some up to 20 or so, but um, a lot of people don't realize that technically 21% of body fat by many standards is overweight. Uh, and most men probably need to add 5% to their body fat percentage of what they think, of what they actually yeah. are. So uh, I think a lot of guys try to bulk too long, for sure. And they, 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 they think I need more mass, but actually they first need to cut. And probably the vast majority of my clients first need to cut before I have them bulk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess looking at your advanced trainees, um, say someone who doesn't necessarily have a competition coming up, how long mm -hmm. will their phases last for? Um, generally, the ratio is re once they get down to their ideal body fat level, and if that's low, if that's like 7%, which is pretty, um, that's like really lean. Um, if they get to that level, if they get all the way up to 15% from a truly lean bulk, that can be most of the year. I've now... Um, what I typically do is mini cuts. So I've been bulking since last October, I think. So over a year, but I've done three, four, three or four mini cuts in between. And then my weight went from, um, went up 
uh, ex with the mini cuts factored in went up uh, six to seven uh, kilograms. So from about 90, very lean, uh, to top end, I was 97, getting chubby. So now cutting, um, doing a slightly longer cut, maybe a few weeks. And then I think I'll keep lean bulking further. So it really depends on if you, if you get really lean and you make it a truly lean bulk, then the, it's probably at least 75% of the time bulking. And then when you're starting to near the top end of the ideal body fat percentage range, then uh, it's time to uh, cut again. And you can decide for yourself if you want to do it like very long phases or um, stay a little bit leaner and maybe have some mini cuts in between to make sure you don't get uh, too puffy for your liking. Um, but I think overall, uh, you can be pretty flexible. Like there are no, it's not like there's a, an ideal, you know, three to one ratio or something that you need to follow. Um, it's more a practical measurement of, you need to be able to monitor your progression because for women, I like to use something called menstrual periodization sometimes, which is basically two week cutting to bulking very roughly in line with the follicular luteal phase. But for men, the problem if you do two week phases is that monitoring your progression becomes really difficult. So, you know, you're, you're bulking for two weeks. It's very hard to fine tune because when you go into energy surplus to energy deficit, it's a big change in water storage, water retention, your weight's going to spike. Uh, you don't know if that's like, if it's too fast or if it's just the water. So that's why I like mini cuts, typically just one week and then just resume the bulk as is or like at least slightly lower phases that are more typical of like typical cut bulk for many weeks on end. Mm -hmm. And then um, looking at someone who may not necessarily compete, um, what's the, is there a role for having longer cuts built in versus mm -hmm. sort of this perhaps like a, just a permanent lean bulking with interspersed mini cut sort of approach. Yeah. And it's some, at some point you will have to, if you, if you just get uh, your body fat percentage gets too high. So, you know, if you want to stay around 10%, which is what a lot of guys ideally probably want in my experience, then you may go up to from like uh, seven to uh, 10 with maybe, maybe one mini cut or two mini cuts in between. And then you, you're probably going to hoover from like 10 to 12 with maybe one or two more mini cuts and then do a bit slightly longer cuts back to seven or eight. And then you sort of stay around that range. So that, that's, a, I think, an effective way to make sure you stay really lean throughout the whole period, but you still put on appreciable time bulking because I can also say that for a lot of people that want to stay really lean, and it's probably also something I've done in the past, is to try to stay too lean and have your energy intake too low throughout the whole year. And then you're definitely leaving some muscle growth on the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's important to, to keep in mind as well that the, you know, the surplus is very helpful. Um, and especially when you're flirting with these lower, lower rates of gains where it, it almost becomes difficult just to monitor that, that amount of gain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's been really helppful, um, and really, uh, thought provoking discussion today, mm -hmm. looking just sort of with keeping your ear to the ground with the research, what are you most excited for coming up in bodybuilding science? Uh, well, I'm working on two studies at the moment. One is, uh, uh, that one is probably going to be published, uh, relatively soon. Uh, it's with Bill Campbell. Uh, a replication of the Matador study and but in training individuals, basically going to be a test of diet breaks. I'm really looking forward to publishing that. And I'm also working on a study 
um, with Andy Gulpin. Uh, we, due to Corona, we had some setbacks and the last cohort uh, data got confounded. So we need to run a new cohort. Not sure how long that's going to be delayed, but I'm hoping to publish it sometime in the next year. Um, probably end of the year, because we need a new semester probably to run the last cohort. But that's going to be really interesting because that's going to be a three-part study where we basically compare four square meals to intermittent fasting. And we're going to see if faster training is suboptimal, as I predict it will be, and if it's necessary to have four meals a day. And also do another study on, um, which there have been a few now, on if intermittent fasting is inherently disadvantageous for muscle growth. And it's going to be uh, on bulking individuals. So we know it's very feasible for cutting, but we don't have a lot of research yet on where you can also bulk very effectively using an intermittent fasting approach. Like that study is going to be really, uh, really cool. Uh, on the one hand, maybe uh, it will defy um, my predictions and it may actually be fine. Uh, nutrient timing is, is really not very important, which will also be a great lesson. On the other hand, if we know uh, it is actually important and we do see significant differences between groups, uh, that's also great to know because then we know um, how to optimize and the nutrient time variables a lot more. What, what's your hypothesis or, or I guess just your current model that you're following? I think uh, four square meals is going to beat out intermittent fasting. Uh, and uh, the fasting, um, especially the, with the morning fasted workouts, is going to be suboptimal. Uh, going to see that in the anabolic signaling. And also probably going to see it in reduced muscle growth. I'm a little worried about statistical power, but um, I think that's going to be that's going to be the trend. Mm -hmm. Alrighty. Well, I think that's been a really good talk today. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today, Menno. Where can people find you? My pleasure. Uh, you can find everything on menohensemals.com, which you probably can spell, so you'll see it in the show notes. Bill's kind of put that in, I guess. Um, and I'm on Instagram and Facebook, uh, where I post a lot of new study reviews and um, tidbits that I find interesting. Great. Thanks again for being on the podcast. All right. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.